just like 20 seasons of like, was it um, Shoes Anatomy? <laughs> I'm Ben McKenzie. Welcome to Pratt Chat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast. Each month, we normally discuss one of Terry Pratchett's books or short stories with a special guest. Thanks to some technical issues, we've moved our next book, Nightwatch, to next month, which seems appropriate since it is about time travel. We've also sent our next special guest, Nadia Bailey, into the future. We'll see you in April, Nadia. So this month, we're discussing three very short bits of Discworld fiction, all collected into a blink of the screen. And when shall these three meet again? I know it's not that book, but, you know, it'll do. <laughs> never. They'll never meet again this way. Uh, these shorter writings are the Ankh-Morpork National Anthem. Medical Notes from the Ankh-Morpork Guild of Barbara Surgeons. And A Few Words from Lord Havelock Veterinari. All right. And we're not introducing a guest or reading a blurb because it is... Is us. There's no blurb. Although we can, what we've traditionally done with the short stories, we've read Pratchett's notes about them, mm. which we can do because he did write notes. Uh, I mean, some of them are very short. Yeah, but they are <laughs> all, all a delight. And I learned a lot from each of them, actually. Yeah. And look, I got to say, like, while this was not planned heavily in advance, I like the way that this has kind of worked out is that we're kind of immersing ourselves in the world of Ang Morpork before we go into one of the books which most delves into its history. So I think this is going to be a nice little bit of a setup. So um, shall we just do like each one in turn? And then if there's any overlap, we can discuss them at the end. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. And I think we'll do them in sort of chronological order in terms of when they were published, which means um, we'll start with the Ankh-Morpork National Anthem. Shall I read Pratchett's notes about this? Yes, please do. In 1998, the BBC, or at least part of it, asked me if the Discworld had a national anthem. I said no, but the city of Ankh-Morpork had one. And they said, would you write it for us? And that led to the first ever national anthem of a fictional city-state being played nationally on BBC Radio 4 on the 15th of January 1999, as the rousing close to a week of programmes about, yes, national anthems. Carl Davis was asked to do the music, and we had several long phone conversations about how the thing should sound, culminating in him ringing me up from a taxi in New York, I think, and playing a stylophone at me. It was wonderful. It was exactly what I'd asked for. Ponderous, slightly threatening, and full of the joyful pomposity of empire. I think it was the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra that played it, with a wonderful soprano who tackled it cheerfully and made sound like something by Wagner. It was never officially played again, for complicated reasons to do with money and copyright, although I think a version did end up online. Some people are such scallywags. I love his attitude to people just, like, doing stuff like that. I mean, like, because he's like, I'm not going to make any money off this. Mm. But also, people really want to hear it. It was played on the radio, like, once or twice. Um, apparently, it was also performed that same year by an amateur prom singing group, uh, which is one of the other recordings, which is now on YouTube. Because you can find ah, you- there's at least two or three versions on YouTube. But one of them's the official one. One of them sounds just like the official one. And one is a bunch of Americans at some sort of 
fan event singing along to the official version. <laughs> I mean, that's charming. The nice thing about the version in the book is that it also includes some in-world explanatory notes about who wrote it and why, which are quite a lot of fun. Yeah, I love that it's written by a vampire who's visiting. So, like, it's because he is right. It is threatening and it's pompous. And the idea that it was written by someone who's not from there but who appreciated it for various reasons has written this very sort of grandiose thing just adds an extra level. Plus there's the great line of when he died died again, died again, and then was staked. (laughs) (laughs) Just lifts all the years of his death. Yeah, it was very good. Yeah, and he's like quite an elderly vampire when he dies as well, isn't he? Well, he's like in his late 70s. His late 70s? Yeah, so like he's born 70s. Oh, I see. You mean like when he was made into a vampire, he's quite old. Yeah, so he's like a, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I wonder if he's a black ribboner now. I don't know, actually. Oh, let's see. He had like a good 90 years of vampiredom. Yeah. The years, I think... One of the interesting things about those years, because it's like, when was he born? 1703, and then his most recently, he was staked in 1872. I guess that means he's dead, dead now. Well, well no, Discworld vampires can come back from anything, though, can't they? Does Uberwald use, like, 1703, etc.? Because that's not how... Uh, well, Ank Morpork does, eventually. Huh. So, this this gets us back into a whole thing about dates on the Discworld... I think he sort of aligned it so that it, you could get a feel for what era it's meant to match up to in our world because it kind of matches the years in our world so that, you know, it's kind of early Victorian. Like, they're, they're not in the 21st century. They're in the century of the anchovy, um, which is the one after the century of the fruit bat. So, they're, the, they're basically in the early 20th century of the disc world. I can't handle anything being after the year of the fruit bat, though, because the year of the fruit bat, that's where everything is modern. Like, this is the year of the fruit bat. Well, it's the century of the fruit bat. Oh, yeah, the, but, you know. But I know what you mean. Yeah, it, it is a bit weird because it changes over time. and like, But that's like all the Discworld stuff. You know, he just revised it to make more sense hmm. with how he felt about it. So, those years, though, I think, yeah, there's this sort of weird thing where they don't quite line up if you look at them across the books, particularly between the earlier ones and the later ones. And then also it's important to remember that these are university calendar years. So there's, there's an Ankh Morpork calendar. Cause if you remember, again, this is, I'm going to get really nerdy here. I'm sure, listener, you will appreciate this if no one else, but the disc revolves one full revolution is two years because the way that the system works, you get two of each season per revolution of the disc, but that's too long. So the, the idea is that farmers use a, a common year because they, one year is one set of seasons that's practical, mm. even if it doesn't match up with what we call a year, which is one revolution around the sun. So uh, there's one dating system that counts a full revolution as a year. And then there's the, I think it's the university calendar, which does a common year, which is just one set of seasons. And that's what this is counting. So, mm. yeah, this just demonstrates that they've kind of been brought into alignment with, you know, when you see the year, you can imagine roughly, even though it's not our world and it's not our history, roughly where it would fit into our history and then get a very quick idea of what's happening. Shall we look at the lyrics themselves? We should. I go through phases where I look through a lot of national anthems and the thing I love about them is, like, they're often just really bonkers if you get close <laughs> up to them. like. <laughs> All yes. national anthems in some ways have something about them that you accept if it's like what you learned at school and you just say the words, etc. But then when you sort of wake up one day and you're like, I'm going to have a close look at the lyrics, there's something just absolutely bananas in mm. there, always. I think there's like, you'd be hard pressed to find a single national anthem that doesn't have something, whether it's like the tune being completely at odds with the lyrics or bluntly stating very violent things. 
in a non-violent, fun tune. <laughs> yeah. So, and uh-huh. this like nails all of that because it sort of has a healthy celebration of bribery in the middle of the first verse. Like it's like we own all your helmets, we own all your shoes. Like that's how they fight their battles. Um, we own all your generals. Touch and you'll lose. And then there's just the triumphant saying of more pork here. And it's just, and when you listen to the whole thing, it does sound like a real national anthem. Like it's partway through some kind of like a musical theater thing, but also like, like Wagner, like a, like a proper opera, operatic. Yeah. It's terrible. Like not, the word is escaping me, but yeah, it just, it's right. Yeah. I mean, I, because my, I don't have not learned a lot of national anthems. One of which, of course, being an Australian national anthem. Um, as it is now, Advanced Australia Fair, which I learned when I was in school. And I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that in a minute. Oh, you learned like so much of the national anthem, didn't you? Like you, we were talking oh. about this just before and there's Ben kept bringing up verses that I was like, well, I thought that I thought there were two verses and I only know the first one. I don't know the first lyric of the second one. And it's like beneath our radiant Southern cross. And then I get into Nur 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 territory. We toil with hearts and hands to no. make this Commonwealth of ours renowned through all the lands. I know. Look. This and is no. The story is very simple. Is that is it? I just happened to be in primary school at the time when they made it the official anthem again because it was for a while. This is something I, I previously researched this and I missed the fact that it was the national anthem, sort of in the early seventies for a little while, and then we went back to God Save the Queen, and then they had a plebiscite attached to a referendum about something else in nineteen seventy seven, and said, "What do you want to be the?" National Anthem of Australia and Advanced Australia Fair got voted back in, but it was a new version of it where they'd taken out two of the verses and altered the other ones just a bit to make them a bit more acceptable. And then it became the official anthem again in 1984. And, you know, I was just starting primary school at that time. And so because it was new uh, and I was in a state school, and this is not something that happens in most schools in Australia now, they got us to sing it every assembly. So, oh, so we learned it <laughs> and we had a poster on the wall in the library, which was also sort of the hall where we, we had assemblies in my primary school where they had the, the lyrics of the anthem on the wall, I remember. And it had like the little Australian flag on it. It's the most nationalistic thing that ever happened to me, I think. And we didn't take it very seriously. You know, at my school, we're singing from our little reader of just fun songs. And the most common one we sang was Octopus's Garden. Oh, look, we did that as well. There was a great magazine made for schools. It was just called Sing with an exclamation mark. That was probably that? it. Did it have an octopus on? No, I'm thinking of Octopus's Garden. I'm just, yeah, there's not always an octopus. I mean, Octopus's Garden was frequently in it. It's a mm. great song. So maybe that was it. Yeah, the national anthem though. Um, so how many verses are there? There are two officially now. There used to be four. Okay. Yeah. That was blowing my mind. What were they about? Uh, well. We can put them in the notes. Let's come back to it because I think we've got a couple of questions about this. Hmm. But it's, I mean, it goes back, the Ankh-Morpork National Anthem. Like, 1999 was when it got written as, as a piece of music, and the lyrics were by Pratchett. But he first named it back in Moving Pictures, which is considerably earlier than that. That's, like, early 90s, I think, mm-hmm. from memory. And that's building on the joke in that book, which he also put in a few other books, about the fact that the way Ankh-Morpork deals with barbarian invaders is just to sell them things until they have no money <laughs> left. Or buy all their weapons off them, you know, like it's, yeah, it's very, it's very funny and in keeping. And that comes up in the third one we're doing for today, actually, like just in passing about, mm. um, yeah, taking everyone's money off them or just was it selling as national defense? Yeah. 
yeah, it's great. But we can talk about the fact that it is colloquially known as We Can Rule You Wholesale, which is also a lyric in there because that is seemingly a reference to We Can Remember It For You Wholesale, the precursor to Total Recall, um, Philip K. Dick's short story that led to yeah. the film. Yeah. Which, and that's, that's a joke from moving pictures as well. The anthem's mentioned in the main text, and then there's a footnote just giving the title as We Can Rule You Wholesale, <laughs> which is just a throwaway gag, and then he's turned it into an actual anthem. It's, I mean, it's a very Pratchett thing to do is make some sort of very silly one-off joke and then later on come back to it and expand it into a whole thing. Yeah, though there's like, I can't see plot parallels with the, <laughs> with the short story. Like, I went through it quite carefully. Short of actually like, Rereading it, mm. I'm pretty sure I read it a while ago, but yeah, it is not connected. No, I'm like unless you sort of do the long bow of like places you vaguely remember or travel and that kind of thing, but I feel like that's a really long bow. <laughs> no, I think both titles are drawing on the same source material, which is you know, oh, we can do it for your wholesale, like we can do your wholesale prices. Mm. Um, kind of like the characters of Mr. Pin and Mr. Tulip. They're not inspired by Pulp Fiction. They're drawing on the same archetypal two tough guys who also seem to be quite erudite. You know, it's a common source rather than one drawing on the other. They have the same parents but very different personalities. <laughs> Are you talking about Mr. Tulip and Mr. Pin? Wouldn't that brothers? be something? That would be something. <laughs> I mean, quite clearly contradicted by the text, but when has that ever mattered to Pratchett? Yes. <laughs> Uh, how do you feel about the actual anthem? Have you listened to a recording of it? Yes, sure. I have. And it was great. Like, it was just like he said, like, the soprano makes it, she's gone all in as treating it as though it's this deadly serious thing in the world. And mm. I think that makes it just so funny. Like, Claire Rutter is her name. I, I actually didn't look her up to see what her career has been like, but I, she does such a great job. I agree. Again, you know, I'm not used to, those sorts of anthems that are sung by like an opera, because it sounds like opera, like mm. it's, it's really an opera style bit of music. It didn't feel to me like something the populace could sing, like it felt a bit out of their reach, the way that it's sung in the official recording. But that's true of lots of national anthems. Yeah, and I, you can absolutely, I can picture them singing this at the mended drum, like at the end of an evening, <laughs> all off key and not quite, and like standing up and throwing things into the ank. Like, I feel like it is, like, while you can take it to that grand level, mm. it is still one that could be sung to that tune by anyone. I'm not going to demonstrate. <laughs> yes, I don't know that we'd get away with that copyright law-wise. Yeah, it's like, the, this is like the kind of version that they'd do at the Olympics if they had yeah. such a thing, but it still would be, like, doable. Yeah. And we should we should mention, uh, listener, you might be wondering why we're not just playing it to you. We can't do that. Crimes. One of the things it's important to know about podcasting is because you're available internationally, you are therefore subject to every possible international copyright <laughs> law. And so it is very complicated to play music on the podcast. And we've gotten away with one or two little bits before, but we definitely could not get away with playing this. As Pratchett himself says, the copyright is quite complicated because mm. he wrote the lyrics, someone else wrote the music. The recording copyright is not owned by Pratchett. Different people are involved in making it. It's not owned by us. It's owned by the BBC. So, yeah, we it's let's not let's not get into it. Let's get into the lyrics. Credit where credit's due. Uh, yeah, one of the things that I think when I read it is I'm like, I do not entirely believe this is something that we written on the Discworld. Like I totally believe it's something written for the Discworld by someone here on our worlds. But I mean. 
swamp dragons are not that big a thing in Ankh-Morpork. They don't appear on the coat of arms or anything. So why they're mentioned in the first line, um, that seems like like, like, Why would it be swamp dragons necessarily? Because it could be like the big grand dragons of yore, like back in the day. Belching. Yeah. Like belching big fire. (laughs) Belching flames. Okay. All right. That's true. And it is the place where, I mean, in this, this anthem's written relatively recently in Discworld history. But people want to draw out all the most grand things when they're writing something like this. So I agree that belch is not the most grand word, but (laughs) I also feel like this vampire maybe could have an idea that maybe that's like a, because he's not a professional writer, is he? So he could like people get funny ideas of well, how. I think, I think he is. Is he? Surely he. Well, he's supposedly he wrote the music as well, so he'd have to be. Okay, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's a lyricist. He just happy like you. Mm. You know, I don't know. Tr- well, I mean, because they make well, him sound like a hobbyist who really loves Ankh-Morpork. Yeah, maybe. But I mean, if it's been adopted as the official anthem, I mean, okay, we so don't this know. Is, this is where we get to get into my favorite national anthem mm. because. It's for um, St. Helena, which is an island, which mm-hmm. is technically their national anthem is God Save the Queen, mm-hmm. but their unofficial national anthem is My St. Helena Island, and it is basically a country and western song <laughs> that was written by a guy who'd never been there, and there's differing stories about like, how he was inspired to do it. Someone suggested to him that he write it, and either they gave him postcards of it, and then he like just dashed one out and the people loved it or he and the guy worked out together um the other guy did the lyrics and he did the music and it is just like a ballad and you need to listen to it afterwards it is my favorite thing i just listen to it for joy sometimes but he's a professional musician but he's not necessarily like just because you can write the music doesn't mean that you're a professional lyricist obviously there's people who can do both but this is or to say that I feel it's perfectly feasible that the vampire chose belch thinking it was a grand word. Right. Okay. All right. No, that's fair. It also does have the aura of something that Dibbler could trot out and <laughs> claim a glorious backstory to. <laughs> like, it does also uh, have that energy. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't say when it was adopted as the national anthem. Like I said, the, the first reference to it in the books is in Moving Pictures, which is during the reign of Vetinari. We do know they sing it in Nightwatch in the 30 years ago part of the story. So Before Vetinari. It is the official anthem, at least as far back as Lord Winder's time. So I, I guess, who knows? Who knows? This is the great thing about the Discworld is that you can't solve continuity puzzles. You just have to make it up. <laughs> it could have just been folded back on there by the monks as well. By the, yeah, the... Time Come in minus. later, but then fold it back. Mm. Well, I mean, if this vampire, if um, we should say his name, Count Henrik Schein, was it? Count- Schlein von Überwald. There's a lot of von Überwalds. I guess that just means from, from Überwald. Yeah. So they're all von Überwald. Although it's interesting that Angua doesn't seem to have another surname. Like she's just von Überwald. But she's like fancy von Überwald, right? Like, yeah. So yes. she might be like how the queen has a last name, but not really. <laughs> Uh, that makes sense. I also like that in the text here, he says, it's known affectionately as We Can Rule You Wholesale, which suggests that's not its official name. It's just what everyone calls it. Hmm. Uh, yeah, I thought that was fun. Um, what What do you think the title would be? Just like the Ankh-Morpork National Anthem yeah, or something assume. like in their version of Latin? And- yeah, probably boring name like that. Mm. Um, I mean, well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe that is the official name. We Can Rule You Wholesale is the chorus. Mm. So it would make sense as that being the official name as well. 
We could pull the pieces, the lyrics. I don't think we'd really need to. They're, the they're pretty straightforward. No, that's, but yeah. The sec- how do you feel about the second verse? Because the joke is that the count has gone, oh, yeah, well, no one ever knows the second verse of their national anthem, so I'll just officially make the words. No, man, no, man, no, man. I, how do you feel about that joke? It's about time someone <laughs> like made it official because it's true. I look just because you, you were like the one person who knows the second verse of national anthem. No, that's not true. A lot of okay, people my age would you know. and um, like three other people who will comment on this, but um, <laughs> otherwise, like I'm not proud of it. Not you should be. It's impressive. You should be proud of it. Like I'm embarrassed. I don't know the second verse, but I'm also like I could do something about that, but I don't. Because when am I ever going to use it? Look, and I, I can only put my hand on my heart to swear that I definitely remember the first half of the second verse. Like the last, there's there's two lines which are pretty fuzzy for me. I'm sure I'd, if I heard them once, I'd go, oh, yeah, and then I'd probably remember them for another 10 years and then forget them. But, um, you know, look, I enjoy it as a joke in the text, but then, t- and, and it is funny to hear like a proper opera soprano sing, which is not something you ever expect. But I lament that it means because he's, you know, there are whole lines which are that without even like a hint of what the proper lyrics in inverted commas could be. I feel like we just, we've missed some opportunities for some extra gags. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, like, like the hints of what the song is about peeking through, but we don't hear them properly. I kind of feel like I would have liked it better if all of those lines had at least like one or two words in them, whereas there's like three full lines of the second verse that just have nothing. <laughs> I guess it's coming to whether like we want the joke or more Pratchett, and it's always like mm. you want a little bit more Pratchett, but at the same time, it can't be about any of the characters and themes that we know and love. It has no. to be general pomposity, and I'm not sure like what else. Like, I'm sure he could find something, but... In terms of if something's missing in those themes, I feel like that's kind of covered. Mm. Yeah. there's. I mean, there's that nice second line in the second verse where it's all no, 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 except for by the ears, at the <laughs> <laughs> which is very, this is exactly what I'm talking about, right? I love that. And I, yeah. I, I like that, you know, it sort of imbues the average citizen of Ankh-Morpork with a real understanding of how their city works because this is the official national anthem. They're happy to sing it. They're proud of it, which means they understand, you know, they're not a military power. They're like the merchant capital of the world. I do feel you on that. Like if you just throw in like a very suggestive word in the middle and you can fill in the picture around it, like there is the opportunity for that. Like if you just had like chains in the middle of one of those lines or like like Mm. run through a tree, like just something strange with a lot of imagery, but that you can build something in your own mind around, but that is not definitive. Yeah. Yeah. But it's good. I like it. It's kind of a shame that there's not a sort of more readily... I feel like it should be something where there should be lots of fan recordings of it, like singing it at conventions and stuff, and yet there's not really any that I could find. But I'm sure, you know, that doesn't mean there will never be any. There could be more. It's possibly what you said, um, that the the fact that the original and the one that's available is like an operatic version that is done Mm. professionally and very well. And so you would have to like break some ground in terms of doing it not that way. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we just need to listen to, and I haven't done this, but if we listen to, I think there's a there's just a little bit of it that gets sung in Nightwatch, and I wonder if in the audio books mm. uh, there's, a, there's a snippet of it sung. Hope so. Yeah. Mm. So shall we move on to medical notes? Yes. 
Yeah, this one, um, like I love all three of these, but I particularly enjoyed these because it was just joke after joke after joke. But we should, before we do that, we should do the traditional reading of the little italics bit. Yeah. What can I say? Various conventions ask for stuff like this as part of the whole business. It's part of how the whole thing works, and usually they get it. And occasionally, possibly, it's good. I think it, I think in this occasion it is good. It is very good. Um, so it says it's from the NACMAC program book. Discord convention, August 2002. And if any listeners were there, yeah, we'd love to hear from you. I would I, love to hear from you anyway, even if you weren't there. But I just think it'd be cool if someone was there and sort of read this for the first time in the program. Like, that's yeah, you know, it's pretty special. I did a search, and I will track this down for the show notes, but I couldn't identify exactly which convention this was before we came to record this. But I think it's the UK one, like the original one, for want of a better word. Um hmm. Certainly wasn't the Australian one. I just assumed it was a Scottish one because of NACMAC program book, but. Well, I think that's more because fan conventions will theme themselves. Like the Australian Discord convention has a theme each year. Like the year we went was going postal theme. Mm. Um, the one which sadly uh, had to be cancelled was going to be Ankh-Morpork, Pork City of 1000 Surprises, which is appropriate <laughs> for this episode to mention because in the footnote in Moving Pictures, that's the pamphlet mentioned that explains their attitude towards barbarian invaders. Anyway, they all have different themes. So I, I don't know if that means it was Scottish. Mm. Yeah, no, I, I, you've convinced me. I do not think that is a clue and I will disregard it. Everything's a clue if you look at it the right way, Liz. Yeah, I've been watching a lot of crime shows and reading a lot of Agatha Christie, and you are correct. It was indeed a clue, and we won't leave you hanging for the episode notes, though you'll find more info there. The convention in question was the Discworld Convention. That's literally the name of the original biannual one held in the UK. The 2002 con, subtitled A Discworld Odyssey, didn't have an overall theme, but the booklet was so named in anticipation of Terry reading extracts from the then-unpublished The We Free Men, and he also read bits of the unpublished Nightwatch. You'll find photos and much more information at the good old L-Space web. We'll have a link in the notes. I can't believe I hadn't read this earlier, because it feels like, much like the, the Johnny book where it's all set in the cemetery, it feels like it was written from me, because um, <laughs> all of this is just hilarious. As a kid, I enjoyed making up medical conditions as one does, like as in like funny ones. I managed to convince yeah. my whole class that if you drew on your hand, the ink would seep into your bloodstream, causing something called inconoiditis, which is actually like <laughs> not a terrible name because anything with itis at the end means it is causing an inflammation. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that was, um, I'm sorry to anyone in my class. So it must have been a joy to be around, but not <laughs> as much a joy as anyone with attention surplus syndrome. Uh, uh, which is the first one that they have, and it's it's just so perfect because he's like this whole section for those who haven't read it is about medical conditions that are unique to Ankh Morpork, and he's just listed out a whole bunch of just very silly, but also like very relatable and familiar ones, and you're kind of like, oh, I know what you okay. I like that it's from the Ankh Morpork Guild of Barber Surgeons, and their publication is called Household Medicine, Hair Care, and Simple Surgery, <laughs> and it's available for two Ankh Morpork dollars. Um, <laughs> a bargain, a bargain. Oh, dear. Uh, yeah, tension surplus syndrome. I like that he's sort of made it a bit more alliterative by changing disorder to syndrome there, um, mm. because obviously this is a counterpart to attention deficit disorder. Um, and it's ass. Yeah. That's yeah. what it is. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't actually thought of that until just now. Don't oh, be no. such an ass. Yeah, yeah. Did you feel called out by this one? Look, yes. I, di- I didn't... <laughs> 
I wasn't as bad as this, but yeah, no. I did pay very strong attention at school. I was on the continuum of um, of symptoms <laughs> at the start. <laughs> I was not an extreme case. Um, mm. Yeah. And particularly the bit about um, having the infuriating habit of reading all the way to the class reader on the first day. <laughs> I'm like, yes, that is something I possibly did. Yeah, I remember in junior school, I accidentally, I guess, did my whole maths problem book one evening early in the whole year because I was just, I got really into it and you're supposed to do like one or two pages of it and I just finished it and the teacher uh-huh. was like, I'm not sure where we go from here, but, um, because <laughs> it was like yes, the you homework get some for- free time during math book time. And there's another one where I misunderstood what we're supposed to do and I read the book we'd been assigned during the school holidays, but it turned out that we're actually supposed to spend several weeks of the year just reading it in class, which just (laughs) meant I read it twice, but (laughs) you knew it really well. That's why I'm so familiar with Lord of the Flies, so Oh, I see. This is where Mm. you're okay. All right. Yeah, so I read it twice as much as anyone else and I love it twice as much. So Maybe I need to read it again, as previously mentioned on the podcast. Then you can point out all the little things in an intention surplus syndrome kind of way. Because like, my other one was um, when we were doing Shawshank Redemption at school, I was like, you can, I think I've said this before like so many times because it's just like an observation that I really enjoyed. But like, spoilers for the Shawshank Redemption, Andy climbs out through a sewage pipe to his freedom. And earlier, when he's trying to talk about freedom, Red says, that's just a shitty pipe dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he climbs out a shitty pipe to his dream. Amazing. Yeah. It's just yeah, that's some that's some good stuff right there. Mm-hmm. Oh, you, I'm wait, just so um, hang on. You studied that in school, Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, the book yeah, or the and, movie. And, uh, well, the movie, but I, because of you know pension surplus syndrome, I also read the novella and also the screenplay, <laughs> which is actually like they didn't change that much. They cut out like one or two scenes, but yeah, um, yeah, wasn't okay. necessary for the class. Yeah, fair enough. Um, let's move on. Um, have, we, have, we spend- <laughs> have we have we done everything in the attention surplus syndrome though? Like, I have think, we gotten I think everything we out of all right? Yeah, we we have. I like also like the first several of these are actual Discworld diseases, but then it slips fairly seamlessly into ones that are clearly references to things that happen at conventions. <laughs> but we'll come back to that. Yeah. The next one is Floribundi's syndrome, which I'm not sure what the name of like. I, I mean, I kind of get where they're going with this. I guess it's sort of... Flowery language? It's probably worth saying that some of these are the inverse of fairly popular culture depictions of real world things mm. rather than, than the real one. Because, like, attention surplus syndrome is very funny. It's not really, like, attention deficit disorder or ADHD as a, another version of that uh, is not really quite like the opposite of no. what's depicted here. And in the same way, Floribundi syndrome, very funny, like unexpected attacks of extreme politeness, but it does seem like it's meant to be a kind of reverse Tourette's. Which is much more complex. Tourette's is not swearing uncontrollably. It's it's about verbal and, and facial tics. So, yes. Yeah, so, we just want to, <laughs> let's just acknowledge that, but then also mm. acknowledge that this is a very funny idea. <laughs> Yeah. Someone could be afflicted with a psychological complaint that means they have to be very polite at unexpected times. Yeah, it's just like named after the guy who called his entire barracks quite vexing gentleman. Oh, <laughs> that was so good. That's just that whole section. Yeah, the idea that one of them was really offended because, like, I don't mind you swearing at me and there's a whole lot of ings in there in a very <laughs> Mr. Pitt and Mr. Tulip fashion, but- 
he thought he really meant it when he said you're a very vexing gentleman. <laughs> and what does vexing mean anyway? Oh, that was great. <laughs> Every time I read one of these, I thought it was going to be my favourite, and then I'd get to the next one, and it was, like, even better or just as good. <laughs> I think the ridiculous. third one is my favourite, though. Yeah, no, it's very good, because it's very clever, because it's, I don't know how he came up with this, but like, the reverse paranoia, the belief that you were out to get everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, it's particularly, I like how he specifies, but it's only like if you're not really out to get everyone. Like if you are, then you're just an evil overlord. You're just them as well. Oh, yeah. And that whole idea of the them, which I, I liked it's because it's kind of also a callback to Good Omens because that's what Adam's gang is called. Yeah, I thought that was cute. And the Unseen University's Department of Invasive Medicine <laughs> gets a mention here, which I thought was very good. <laughs> That was very funny. Yeah. But what, what tests do they do? Yeah, I don't know. Invasive ones. What do you, well, how would you, te- how would you test for this problem? To see if someone is them? To, well, to see if someone is suffering from paranoia inversa. I mean, I guess they are. If they come and tell you, like, I have this feeling that I'm just spying on everyone and destroying their lives. You know, well, are you? Like, I mean, if you're not, I don't see that this is a problem unless it's distressing you, in which case, okay. But well, yeah, what test would you do for that? I guess you do stuff like leave out mail and leave out information and see what they do with it, like in a controlled <laughs> environment, and then see how the con- you'd also have a control group who've, like you'd have had the control group ages ago with the same tests, and then you just see how this person performs in comparison to them. Ideally, you'd have also tested several of them as well, so then there's things to compare to. So if they act the same way as them, then mm. that's kind of, like it's not a perfect test, but most tests aren't. Right. So, yeah, I think it's um, a behavioral, like a series of behavioral tests compared to different results and see how they align. Mm. What do you think? How would you do it? I mean, I think I think you're on the money there. I don't I don't think there's any other way to, to really test for this, although it does specify that she maybe does have actual powers because one of her fears is that she's picking up on people's thoughts and they say, oh, you know, you were born as one of them, but you've never been taught to use your powers. So that indicates that she does have them. You do have to test to find that as well. But they have got tests for, like, psychic things, don't they? Like, they've done tests. Mm. Yeah, famously, um, there's the Xenocard test, which is nothing to do with any warrior princesses. It's spelled completely differently. Sadly. But that's the deck of cards that have the symbols on them, like a triangle, circle, wavy lines. You hold them up to someone and ask them what it is without showing it to them. So you hold up reverse and you look at it. Because the, the idea is not that they can guess the card. The idea is that if you're looking at the card... The reason they know what it is is they're reading your mind to see what mm. you're looking at. When I was a kid, I signed up for, I think it was Time Magazine was publishing these like mysteries of the paranormal books kind of deal. But I thought it was just going to be like cool mysteries of the world. Like how did they build the pyramids and stuff? And then it turned mm. out to be all supernatural stuff and I wasn't into it. So we sent them back. But I got to keep the deck of Xena cards that it came with. And it also had like a little scorecard. And I remember I did this test on my brother. <laughs> I got him to do it. And it had like a threshold for how many you had to get right to demonstrate some level of psychic ability. And it was a, it was a reasonably high threshold. Is your brother psychic is what, what, what everyone wants to know. Very slightly. Okay. Very slightly more psychic than me. Okay. Which is not very. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's not a terrible test, theoretically. I mean, you have to believe that psychic powers exist, of course, which is where my stomach block comes in. But they could have done something like that at the Department of Invasive Medicine. I mean, if you if your brother did have a high score, he might have come down with a bad case of planets. Yes. <laughs> I like this because this is from one of the books. The bursa gets planets in The Last Continent. 
Um, oh. And they float around his head. That's right. I was like, why is this so familiar? Yeah. They don't really go into any detail about what it is. I like the story about it in this, particularly the other wizard, Rorty Williams, but I just like any hearing any new wizard's names. Mm. Rorty's such a good name. <laughs> I don't understand the bit about he never wore a hat at the end. Like, I was trying to figure out that. Oh, because he didn't want to crush the civilization that was colonizing his head. Oh, yeah. Okay, I was like, is it because I was like, is he trying to keep them away from colonizing his head? You'd be wearing a hat, but he's nice. Okay, so yeah, there we yeah, go. Yeah. He's allowing the colonization. We should actually. I just want to say before we skip on, like for anyone who hasn't got access to these, we should describe a little more detail what happened to Mrs. Pewter, who is the person suffering oh. from paranoia inversa, because once it's explained to her that you no, know, you really are a member of them, you just don't know how to use your powers. If you want to go and learn, you have to wear these dark robes and go to secret meetings and stroke a fluffy cat. And she's like, mm, I don't want to miss out on bridge nights. So she instead takes like some medicine to tamp down those urges. And she's allergic to cats. I thought that was that was really cute. And similarly yeah. in this yeah. one, there's the story of um, the wizard Rorty Williams who had planets for a long time. And so one of the planets develops an advanced civilization that sends ships across to try and colonize his head. That really tickled me. Although in the last continent, the planets are not quite tangible. Like they pass through each other. These ones clearly have been around long enough that they've got a bit more real. Yeah. So like planets is where it starts. You get orbited by planets. You become the center mm. of a universe because of a breakdown in the inhibitory circuits, which prevent every individual's belief that he or she is the center of the universe and being broadcast <laughs> to the universe at large. And that's very good. Oh, uh, yeah. I like that a lot. It reminds me very much of the tiny space fleet from The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, which uh, if you bought the video game, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, back in the day, well, this is in the era where video game boxes came with lots of cool stuff in them to make you feel better about the fact that you were buying a non-tangible product. You got a bunch of tangible stuff in the box. I didn't know and- that. Yeah, yeah, they used to come, like, like particularly the text adventures, because there was no graphics, they'd come with, like, maps and books of pictures and stuff. And the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy one, one of the things it came with was a microscopic space fleet in a little plastic bag. And, of course, the plastic bag was empty, <laughs> but it was in there. That is so good. So, it reminded me of that. All right, shall we um, go on to scroopism? Yeah, scroopism. Now, this is the one where, for most of the part, I found this fairly seamless. Still Discworld writing, but clearly about things from the real world, but it didn't intrude. Whereas this one starts by referencing Thomas Bowdler and Shakespeare. <laughs> and I'm like, they don't exist on the Discworld. What is happening? <laughs> but I'll excuse it because it's such a funny idea. And also, I love the name of the person that this is named after, whose name is Male Infant Scroop. That's his first name, male infant. Basically, he adds rude things into books that aren't yeah. rude. It's reverse bowdlerism. A lot of these things are reverse things, but they're very funny. And it's like it shows how like the it grows. Like he would scribble in Martin school books things like knickers, but N I double K E R S, and it's just that's very funny. But um, he eventually like comes into some money and starts reprinting books with rude bits added in that look just like the original ones, and then swaps them around when people aren't. <laughs> People aren't looking, like the booksellers aren't looking. And <laughs> the only way people notice is that some books start selling really, really well. And my favorite idea is that there's this book called Thoughts from a Country Garden, which wins several highly contested literary awards and was praised by a judge for its quote, bold and controversial stance on the subject of primroses. <laughs> what did he say? Well, I feel like this is definitely. Well, I don't know if it's intended as one, but it feels like this is kind of a crossover with Nanny Og's cookbook because there's all those memos at the start about the trouble that they had 
not just with the joy of snacks, but with other things. And there's also, I think in that book, it's Nanny's previous book about gardening, which has got all of the rude things that flowers mean. That makes sense. Because the language of flowers. Yeah, it really, it reminded me of that. But yeah, and the idea of when he finally died, his gravestone is wrapped in brown paper because it's so rude. Yeah. <laughs> but I like to think then, it just says knickers. Yeah. And then there's uh, there's a couple of final ones. These are like fandom jokes. He loved hanging out with Discworld fans. I think he's on record somewhere as saying he much prefers hanging out at a fan convention in the pub, you know, than with a bunch of literary authors at a writing festival. And you're like, I, I can understand that. Like, I've had fun in both of those contexts, but I, I get it. And so the next one is, uh, how would you pronounce this, Liz? You're the one with the medical knowledge. Signatus. Signatus. Oh, yeah. It sounds a bit like tinnitus. Mm. <laughs> but, but it's clearly, I, I like he doesn't quite say exactly what it is, but for anyone who's familiar with Pratchett, his reputation is that he would sign everything. And in fact, at fan conventions, he'd often stay quite a lot later than he originally agreed in order to make sure everyone got their books signed. And in fact, this excessive signing of books became known in fan circles more generally as Pratchetting. And because he was the worst offender, Douglas Adams also did this a little bit. Uh, and so this is what this is about. And it doesn't say that. It just says the sufferer would groan and sometimes run away at the sight of anyone holding more than three books. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a real thing. Like I interviewed Raymond Feist one time and he was like, his wrist hurt from signing so mm. many books because he'd written so many and he's also like really dedicated to his fans. So it just, it's that repetitive mm. motion, which also comes into the next one. But yeah. Yeah, Neil Gaiman's the same. He signs mm. heaps of stuff. Um, rare unsigned copies. I mean, he yeah, rare unsigned copies, exactly. This is also from the Pratchett fandom. This is the origin of that term. But yeah, I mean, Gaiman takes it a level further where he just goes into airport bookshops when he's traveling and signs copies of his books that are on the shelves and then tweets oh, that so he's good. done it so people can go and get them. It's great. I love it. And then we have a related one, bursaritis or chronic continence. This is the giveaway. It's con, short for fan convention, which is really summed up by the first sentence. The illusion that you have brought hundreds of people a long way in order to celebrate something that doesn't really exist. Mm. <laughs> Referring to the madness of fans. And we all do this, you know, we get together in big numbers. We make monthly podcasts for years about things that aren't real. I mean, the books are real, but, you know, the, the place in the books. The is themes real. are real. The themes are real. I mean, the places are like this actually does lead nicely into the next one, which we're not going into yet. But like the mm. the line between real and not real, blurry, very mm. blurry. Mm. I do like how he says doing things at people, like the guy played the played the the instrument at him from the taxi, and like the, these people sell T-shirts at people. And it's just yes. very good use <laughs> of like a small thing to change how a whole sentence feels. Yeah, I, you know, and you, look, shout out to the Australian Discord folks. I still regret that I did not let you sell a t-shirt at me when we were there for the going postal con. I don't remember why I didn't get one, but I, I really- I got one. Yeah, no, you got one. I'm, mm. I'm envious of your t-shirt. You should be. <laughs> it's very, it was very cool. Blue and yellow design with a postmark. Mm. Yeah, it was great. Anyway, I regret not getting one. As someone who back in the day, uh, did help to run some fan conventions. I found all the symptoms of bursaritis very familiar. Manic depression, fixed waxy smile, tendency unless physically prevented from doing so to sell t-shirts. Yeah, no, totally. 
<laughs> only 1,978 <laughs> mugs to sell before we break even. Yes. <laughs> I've been there. I've been there. I mean, I think the, the saving grace was that the, the main convention stuff that I was involved in, we were doing it for charities. So that helped us get some stuff over the line. It also meant some people who would come as guests would waive their fees. But it also meant people were a little bit more generous, maybe. And I think, you know, fan conventions have a long history of, of donating money to charity as well. So it's a nice legacy to be part of. I miss those conventions. And going to Nullis Anxietis, the Discworld convention, was a, a really lovely reminder of how great they were and how much fun they can be. It was my first one, and it was so good. Like, it was, I won't ever forget it. I didn't know what to expect, and it's such a nice community. I, I miss them mm-hmm. as in because we expected to go to more in the last few years. But as we've all, you know, I'm everyone knows about the pandemic, so I'm not going to go down that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This whole thing, medical notes being written for a booklet for a convention, I think is indicative of how much Pratchett really got into it because he mm. he did lots of stuff like that. It was after he died, but in 2016, there was a Discworld fan convention where Rob Wilkins read out a bit of one of his unfinished manuscripts and then shredded it or, or burned it in front of the audience. It's like, this is the only time anyone's going to hear about it. You can't, you know, like, so there's no record of it. Like, no one was allowed to film it and it was destroyed, but it was mm-hmm. like, but he would want you to hear it, <laughs> like, in yeah. this limited way. He'd be fine with this because it's not going to see wider circulation. And you get the impression, yeah, who would? Mm. You know, the stories about the origin of Nanny Og's cookbook, which is, you know, he met a fan who was cooking stuff and a thing. It's like, this is amazing. Can you make, like, a... A book full of these will do it and all that kind of stuff. He really loved it and, and he gave back, I feel, which mm. was probably one of the reasons why he's so beloved by fans, just apart from the way that he wrote. It's also the way that he embraced that part of the job, so to speak. Shall we move on to our third and final bit of Ang- more Porkiana? Yes, it is a few words from Lord Havelock Veterinary. And I didn't know what to expect from this, from the title alone, because I didn't know what it was mm-hmm. when we chose it. And when I did find out what it was, I was like, surely this isn't real. And then when it was real, I was like, I'm extremely jealous. So there was a lot of emotional phases I went through in reading this very short. Like, it's like page and a half of the actual text. But let's let you give the context from the little italics introduction. Mm. On the occasion of the twinning of Ankh-Morpork Pork with Wynne Canton, 2002. This address was written by me, Terry Pratchett, and delivered with appropriate solemnity by Stephen Briggs, who has often played the part of Lord Vetinari in amateur dramatic plays. Frankly, it's hard to get him out of the costume. A bewildered bystander, I watched the twinning, which was, of course, attended by many, many fans wearing strange and exotic garments, in some cases quite possibly the same garments that they wear every day. But even they were very nearly outdone by the people of Ankh-Morpork, who came out dressed, as they say, on fête. It was one of those occasions when sometime afterwards you wake up and think, did that really happen? And on inquiring, I am very glad to hear that it did. I tried to find pictures of this and I couldn't. I found articles, but couldn't find pictures. It's just slightly too early, right? Like, you've got to remember, YouTube is like 2005. So things that mm. predate YouTube are often quite hard to find. Because in the age of smartphones and YouTube, film it, stick it up there. Not even MySpace, is it? Like MySpace is later. <laughs> I think MySpace might have been around in 2002. I think. Mm. I didn't get it till 2005, I don't think. But that means yeah. it probably was around from like a few years earlier. I'm not an early adopter of these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't really say why Wing Canton is being twinned with Ankh-Morpork. But really, I think it's because it's in Somerset. 
it's in southwest England, so it's not far from where Pratchett lives. But most notably, it's where the Discworld Emporium is. So, there's been a lot of Discworld stuff happening there. I understand that they've now closed the physical Discworld Emporium store and they only do mail order, which makes sense. I mean, they weren't exactly, you know, you know, they're not on the high road in London, in London, you know, but it's a shame that people can't visit the shop anymore. But I I understand. But yeah, the, uh, (laughs) I think that's the reason. Still jealous. Do you think, uh, because in the speech, Vetinari says that he believes this is the very first twinning between a real and apparently unreal city, Mm. which is hilarious because he's referring to Wing Canton as the unreal one. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, But do you think that's true? Is is this ever happened elsewhere? I think so. Like, I read an article that suggested that, but I didn't go deep into looking into other, like, possible pairings. I certainly haven't heard of any. Like, I've Mm. heard of people marrying landmarks. That's not quite the same, is it? No. No. So I, I haven't heard of any. I mean, if you wanted to pair Melbourne with a fictional city that and Ankh-Morpork is off the market, what yeah. would you But that's would you Ankh-Morpork's pick? the best one. I know. That's why I had to say it's off the market because I knew you'd choose um, it. But it's it's already twinned to no. Wincanon. Well, I mean, we could triple it with them. I don't know. It's weird, isn't it? Because like, a lot of fictional cities don't really leave very much of a mark on you. I was thinking about this because one of the challenges in our Pratchett reading challenge is to read a book set in a fictional city. Hmm. And I, there's just not that many that are memorable. How about you? Have you got one? Nothing that immediately leaps out at me. Like I've been thinking about it and maybe the Swindon from the Thursday Next series because, I mean, the whole world is like it's an alternate reality version of what we already have like in in Mm. england but it's a society where everyone's really into books even though that changes across the course of the series but i feel like that could be quite nice um paired with melbourne which is a city of literature so that that kind of is a nice fictional pairing Mm. speaking of swindon did you know that the real world swindon love that you had specified that is twinned with walt disney world in florida i did not yeah what is walt disney world Walt Disney World is the second Disney theme park and resort, located in Florida near the city of Orlando. The resort isn't a city, but as part of the agreement to build there, Florida created a new district and two new cities that are controlled by the Disney company, their literal company towns. The Twinning with Swindon was the result of a competition held by Walt Disney World in 2009, won by Rebecca Warren who wrote a poem and made a video in which she compared Swindon's magic roundabout, a roundabout composed of five smaller roundabouts, to Disney's famous teacup rides. Next to that, the whole Ank Walpole thing seems absolutely normal. But yes, that seems very weird. Mm. I guess that's a real place, though. It's not a fictional place. Walt Disney World exists. Well, yes. It's a whole world, in fact. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so this is like a speech sort of celebrating the twinning of it. And I thought it was quite nice. It was like very brief. It's just a page and a half. But mm. um, I don't really have much to say other than um, it was cool. And I, what I really liked was what you pointed out before is that he was saying that Wincanton is the, the made up one. Yeah. Um, and I like how he sort of does spin a little fictional reason why this is possible, that there's some mm. sort of weird portal between the two towns, and so they thought they might make the arrangement formal some way. And about the natural suspicion about people say, like, he said, we heartily extend our hand of friendship with the other hand hidden behind our backs. And then there's the <laughs> comment that we talked about earlier about how um, he feels like it's a bit of a loss that they let travellers leave with some of their money still intact. They should probably do yeah. something about that. Yeah. It a lot in, actually. 
Yeah, there's a lot of nice little jokes. And, I mean, as always with Pratchett, even when he's reusing sort of a joke concept, he's still iterating on it and writing a fresh version of it. And it feels new. And, mm. yeah, this this little speech is full of them. Would have been a lot of fun to give. I haven't listened to a lot of Stephen Briggs's audio. I've listened to a bit. But I think for me, I still think of, like, one of my favourite voices for Vetinari is still Charles Dance, who plays him in one of the TV versions. Um, yeah, he's very good. He just good. nails it. He's so good. Just um, at everything he does, though. He's very good. Yeah. You know who I reckon could do a good job of veterinary? My mm-hmm. first surprising choice, perhaps? Jude Law. Mm, yeah. I think he can flip a switch because he can seem very good-natured, but then there's, like, he can seem really cold beneath the surface. He can do both. Yeah, he's kind of just old enough now to do the young veterinary from the start of the books. Like, I think- <laughs> Young poet, yeah, young veterinary. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he's, he's onto it. He's ready. <laughs> yeah, no, that'd be good. I could say- That's a good pick, Liz. Yeah. Nice yeah. one. Because he's, like, moving into a new phase of his career, I'm pretty sure, so that's- Yeah. Mm. And veterinary's not that old. Like, even when he's older in the books, he's still only in his 50s. Like, he's not that old. Yeah, but he's not like an Alfie type. Like he walks with a cane, but it's not because he's like seventy-eight years old or whatever. It's like you know, sorry to any listeners if you're seventy-eight. I'm not trying to imply that's the oldest a human being can be. That came out quite mean, but it's just that he isn't. That's all. Yeah, he's not like very elderly. Like he's not in his nineties or anything. He's uh, in his fifties. He's the same age as Vimes. Very similar age, anyway. If you started making movies about Ang Morpork now and you cast Jude Law. He would age mm. into the role very nicely. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Mm. But that's it. Those are our three bits of Ank more Porkiana, or just more Porkiana, I guess, would be more appropriate. I loved it. Like, it's just good. Yeah, it was fun. I keep thinking, like, dressing. Like, it's just like we're eating a Discworld salad and we're putting, like, the dressing of this stuff on it. <laughs> that's not quite right. Is it croutons? Like, we have to be eating a salad in this scenario. I'm fixed on that. So, <laughs> no. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> Okay, no, that's reasonable. Is it tomatoes? Uh, <laughs> if you do want to read these, they are all collected in A Blink of the Screen. They were also previously collected in the book whose title I love, Once More with Footnotes. <laughs> to add a footnote to Once More with Footnotes, it does not have a few words from Lord Havelock Retinari, but it does have the other two. As I understand it, it's an earlier collection of short Terry Pratchett stuff, and it's a hodgepodge of fiction and non-fiction. But I think it was published basically by a group of fans in the US because it was just impossible at the time to find all of his shorter stuff, particularly mm. if you weren't in the UK. Like, if at least you're in the UK, you could find, like, the book that this one was published in and the thing that this published in the magazine, that this little newspaper. But if you're in the US, it was, like, basically impossible. So, I think that's where it came from. But nearly everything that was in that has now been collected in a blink of the screen and a slip of the keyboard. But anyway, that's where you'll find these three things that we've discussed today. Now, we have some questions, I think, Liz. I was going to say, we do. do we have any favourite bits? But I, I can't imagine. They're not long enough that they could have favourite bits we haven't <laughs> mentioned. Yeah, I think we just- All of it was a favourite bit and we discussed all of it. Yeah. So, no. Um, no or no okay. additional favourite bits, I think. No is the answer. Okay. Well, what questions did we get? So, the first question we got was from Rin Betancourt via Facebook. Mm-hmm. Which of Sir Terry Pratchett's short stories do you wish had been expanded into a whole book? That's a great question. I haven't even read all of them yet. Oh, I haven't either. This is kind of cheating because we discussed it, but I think Once and Future would have made a great book. Yeah. That's the King Arthur one. If you haven't listened to that episode, we'll put a link in the show notes so you can find it easily. But that that was great fun. And I think as a standalone book would have made a great one. I mean, some of his short stories have been expanded (laughs) into novels. 
Like, I mean, if you look at Rince Mangle, the Gnome of Even More, which I'm sure we'll do an episode about at some point, is like a prototype for truckers and, and the carpet people were short stories and then they got turned into a book. So I think some of them have had that treatment. And once in yeah. future, I think, yeah. I don't think any of the Discworld ones necessarily. Oh, well, I was thinking about it. Medical notes as a concept, I think mm. like it could be good to see like the Barbara Surgeons have a book. Like I would have really enjoyed like a very medical one with a bit of Igor interjection as well. I think that could mm. be could have been like a really good so like it's not a story necessarily in medical notes. Though there are like a few bases of stories. Like I wouldn't mind seeing that battalion that <laughs> gets um sort of fractured by too much polite language. Because there is stuff that you could build on there. But I think, yeah, a Barbara Surgeon medical Discworld book, I yeah. would have personally very much enjoyed. And there's a lot of basis for a book in there. Like you could draw a lot of elements out. Mm. So, so maybe medical notes. It's not a short story. It is a series of notes, but there is mm. concept there that could be turned into something bigger. Yeah, I know. I'm on board with that. I mean, because also there's this sort of interesting, not disparity, but the sort of two versions of how he's treated medical stuff in the books like in the early watch books for example they keep sending for a veterinary surgeon because they don't trust actual doctors and then that all turns around in night watch where we find mm. out there is a skilled medical doctor who does know what he's doing and has been in Ankh-Morpork for 30 years but nobody knew he was there because he was kind of off in the corners so that's he doesn't really get a book of his own but he does crop up in a couple of important places and there is the whole Igor stuff. like yeah. yeah. So there's interesting difference of how the medical profession is treated. And, yeah, a book about maybe about the establishment of the first hospital in Ankh-Morpork or something yes. could have been part of the plot. That would be very cool. Because we know that happens in upcoming books. <laughs> but, yeah, that that could have been fun. I mean, you can see a medical drama in Ankh-Morpork <laughs> be intense. Just, like, 20 seasons of, like, was it um, Shoes Anatomy? I'm not sure why I chose him, but I no, think I, he would be involved Shoes Anatomy, somehow. I love it. Uh, well, I mean, you can look at his anatomy without doing him any harm, really. Yeah, it's just, like, teaching the students. He comes in and goes, okay, you all got the left recurrent laryngeal wrong last time, so here's what happens when you cut it. And then he cuts it, and his voice goes hoarse, and he's like, okay, now that's why it's important to so. I feel like he'd do a very good job. Just pulls off his arm and shows him the inside. This is what necrosis of a tissue looks like. Okay. And then what did Steve do wrong here? All right. <laughs> this is it's starting to feel a bit real for you, yeah. there, Liz. This is, this is coming from real life experience. Someone write a, write a radio play of this. I would, I just, there's, yeah, I just want it to happen. Mm, okay. All right. Hmm. Well, let's have a think about this. We can make something mm. happen. Yeah. That's cool. I would love to know what your answer for this is, listener, mm. because there are so many short stories. There's a book full of them. Uh, yeah. yeah. And if there's one that you really like that you think that would be cool as a whole thing, let us know. So, next one is from Bell via Discord, who sent us one for each of them. So, let's do them one by one. So, mm -hmm. the first question is, how much of the Australian anthem do you know? So, we've answered that. Ben knows a lot of it. And I know the first anthem, I think, but I haven't had to sing it in a while. So, it's possible that I've forgotten bits of it, which is, you know, very bad i suppose but there was a chat in the discord about it and i was mm. just like i think ben was on video while i was reading it for the first time and every so often there'd just be something that made me yell there's how many verses what do you mean they changed that lyric wait so, a fourth verse excuse yeah. me so it was just a big discovery for me i'll unpack that a little bit more so when it was first written there were four verses and it was first written in like the 1870s i think late 1870s and they changed it. So, um, the first verse is pretty similar to the original first verse. 
The other three original verses have been chucked out, thankfully, because they're gross. They're about how great Captain Cook is um, and how people think we're so great, how England and Germany think we're cool. It's like, no, this is no good. Sounds like a burn book. And also how we'll kill anyone who tries to invade us. Like, it's not, <laughs> it's not great. What, with our tanks that are getting here in like 15 years that are really expensive for our <laughs> Gert by Sea nation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Oh, it's the worst. But then it got updated. They changed the third verse in 1901 to celebrate Federation. And that became the modern version of what we now treat as the second verse, which is pretty similar. So the revised version from 1984 is pretty nice. It doesn't say anything too horrible. I mean, it's still a colonizer's anthem. Mm. It does not acknowledge Indigenous Australians at all. So it's not, it's far from perfect. But as it, compared to the earlier versions, it's a big improvement. So there are only two verses in the modern version that has existed since 1984. Also, for those who don't know, it's called Advanced Australia Fair. That's its title. Yeah. It's interesting because it's got such a weird poetic construction of language that children are asked to sing this song and they clearly don't know what most of it means. I mean, I think Australians are the only people in the world who really know what the word girt means. <laughs> Because all of them, all of us have looked it up in a dictionary, having <laughs> sung it in our song. Can you be girt by things other than sea? Of course you can. Yeah. yeah Otherwise, we wouldn't have to specify the word girt by sea. Yeah. Mm. It basically means girdled, right? Surrounded. So it's not a mystery in that way, but it is a weird word <laughs> to use. Golden soil and wealth for toil. So the second verse also has the bit that those of us who would like to advocate for refugees being treated in an even borderline humane way in Australia, which they are not currently. There's a line in the second verse, which is, for those who've come across the seas, we've boundless plains to share, which, I mean, come on, if it's in the anthem, <laughs> we should do it. So, yeah, that's the Australian National Anthem. What's the next question from Belle? So, this one's from Medical Notes. What completely original yet curiously familiar complaints do you think this excerpt is missing? And do you suffer any such complaints yourselves? So, I think we've answered the latter one, possibly a bit too yeah, honestly. We've told on ourselves a bit there, I think. <laughs> um, definitely the convention ones. I, I definitely identify with that as well as ASS. What, what, do you, what is missing? It's hard to say because they're all so good. I don't feel like anything I can come up with could compete. It doesn't really mention anything that could possibly be afflicting assistant postmaster Grote. <laughs> <laughs> like, well, nothing can like, afflict him. He is protected. I guess that's true. But is that not? Is there not like some sort of twist on Munchausen syndrome, where he's making himself sick in order to not get sick? Like it's not he's trying to get attention and making himself fake sick. It's that he's making himself sick by giving himself all these. I don't know. It feels like there could be a way. No, he's making himself too healthy. Yeah, perhaps like he. It's like an almost an aura of healthiness that just, like, shoots other healthy things away, like, repels them. Yeah. This is touched upon, I think, in Going Postal because they do take Grote to the Ankh-Morpork Hospital, which we'll hear more about when we read Nightwatch. But I think there's something there. And also, what about, is there not a medical condition caused by eating Dibbler's food that is very specific to that? <laughs> or drinking like, the water from the ankles? Oof. No, we don't. Oof. I feel like the, the medical condition caused by eating Dibbler's food is the strange desire to consume more of it. That's, yes. Like, it's contagious yes. within itself. Like, it's just, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. What would be a Latin name for that? Something aruborous. I know that's not Latin, but mm. you know how it's like a oh, snake eating its own tail, but mm -hmm. sausage eating its own self. 
Now it's, I'm envisaging like the Ouroboros symbol, but a sausage eating its own tail. Yeah. That's great. That's another t-shirt idea. Yeah. Oof. Are you, okay. you going to sell it at, at people? I will sell it at people. How many till you break even? <laughs> 5,000. No, that's too many. <laughs> one. Will I only sell them? <laughs> well, I'll print them on demand. <laughs> it's genius. What about like things that other dwarfs and trolls? Yeah, like stuff? surely trolls get like sort of weird. Like I don't imagine they get diseases in inside because they're kind of made of stone. So what would get in there? Probably got scalers, like just people climbing them. Summers, <laughs> The old trolls get humans. Bad case of flags. <laughs> flags, yeah, they break out in flags on top when they turn into a mountain. Maybe they get, uh, they might get lichen or something growing on them. That'd be interesting. I think you could make up more. Yeah. I have a suspicion there might be some in the Discworld role-playing game, which we'll cover at some point. We'll, fi- we'll find them. We'll find mm. them. I'm probably going like, to think of some in the middle of the night and be like, no, I've lost <laughs> my opportunity to mention them. <laughs> oh, I accidentally um, foreshadowed Belle's question um, for the next one, which is which Unreal Town would you like to have twinned with a real-world town? Oh, yeah. I mean, are there any others? Are there any towns we hate that we could like combine with Mordor? I don't, know. <laughs> I don't really hate anywhere. No, that much. No. I'm trying to think of like fictional. It's not that many shows I watch, like or, or books I read that are sort of set in a specific town. I mean, I guess um, I don't know if you've read any of Robert Rankin's ones, but they're all set in a particular town. Well, not all of them, but a lot of them. Brentford. That is screaming out to be twinned with some small country town. Well, like St. Mary Mead, where Miss Marple is from, could be twinned nicely with somewhere that enjoys a good mystery. Yeah. Ooh, um, what, Sunnydale could be paired with somewhere. Oh, yeah. Where do we think is, is also on the top of hell? <laughs> <laughs> that's what gets twinned with Sunnydale. Oh, no. Or, or that's twin, that's on top of heaven or just underneath it, because then they can have like a good sort of opposite thing happening. Mm. We're coming up with fictional towns that we'd like to see paired with somewhere, but we're just struggling with the where to pair them. Yeah. So perhaps that is another one to throw over to our listeners. It's a different question. Yeah, because a lot of the – I mean, this is the other thing too, is a lot of the, the fictional cities and towns are not necessarily great nice. places to go. <laughs> yeah. Know? So you don't really want to twin with them. Like this is why I think people like Ankh-Morpork, because Ankh-Morpork's got all the elements of like – traditional awful fantasy city but it also is great <laughs> like we also mm. love it and it feels very real and lived in because it's a mashup of so many real influences oh i've got one um what about mm. hilldale a nice place to live from back to the future that that is a relatively <laughs> in some versions it's a nice place to live so that's true is it hilldale that's or hill valley? It's hill valley hill valley yeah yeah i, I kind of want it for us hill valley and, and melbourne well, we have yeah. been the world's most livable city once or twice. Uh, a meaningless award that <laughs> doesn't really tell you anything about the quality of living in a place. I really need to look more into how that's awarded because it baffles me every time. Mm. But, yeah, not that I don't like living here. Listener, I do love Melbourne. It is one of my favourite cities in the world and I'm lucky to live in it. But, yes. Um, that's a good question. Yeah. That we kind of answered twice. <laughs> Um, speaking of questions we've kind of answered twice, um, but we'd like mm. to build on, from Sven via Discord, which of the three short stories is the best and in your eyes the foundation that could have turned into a full book? So my vote is for medical notes for turning it into a full book. Yeah, I think it's my favourite as well because I don't think a story about changing the Hank Morpork National Anthem would really sustain a whole book. Like that's a longer short story, I feel. But I agree with you that turning medical notes into a story about the state of medicine in Hank Morpork would be would be great. 
So those are all our questions. Um, thank you for sending them in. If you do have any other questions or comments, of course, you can send them in. The hashtag for this episode is PrattChat53. We're going to try and keep them sequential, which does lead us to talk about the fact that our next episode will be Nightwatch with our wonderful returning guest, Nadia Bailey. And we already have a ton of questions for that. But if there's one that's really burning that you really want us to answer... Um, or, and this is actually a, a good opportunity, if you have never asked us a question before, maybe because the monthly schedule is a bit hard for you to keep up with or you're, you know, you're catching up on the backlog. If this extra month of time knowing that Nightwatch is coming gives you an opportunity to ask a question when you haven't before, please send it in and we will do our best to prioritize that. But be aware that we already have quite a mountain of great questions that we probably won't get to them all. Although we might try and answer quite a few of them and some of those extra answers might end up in our subscriber-only bonus podcast, The Ook Club, which you can listen to if you subscribe to us via Possible if you'd like to support the podcast. And thank you to all of our subscribers who do that, uh, particularly to Belle and Sven who ask questions this episode and most episodes. Always great question askers. We appreciate those. What else What else do we need to say, Liz? What news from the world of Pratchat? Is there news? I think it could be good to talk again about the book club, just for oh, anyone who might have missed it. The reading challenge, yeah. yeah. So this is something that we are going to try and do. I think we'll probably try and do it every year now, but we have put out a, a reading challenge. We're hosting it on the Story Graph, which is sort of an alternative to Goodreads, which is a website for tracking your reading, um, what books you've read and when. You don't have to use that. We've got all the details of it on our website as well. If you just go to pratchettpodcast.com. We've kept it short because... You're probably reading other books already, including the ones for the podcast. But there's six prompts to try and get you to read new things by other authors that you might enjoy if you enjoy Terry Pratchett. And they're pretty fun. Are you re- Have you read anything for it yet, Liz? No, not yet, but I am planning to. I talk about this at length on our next Oot Club episode, but I read Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir for one of mine, and I really loved it. So I'm really looking forward to reading the sequel. I'm currently reading a book which I don't think fits any of the prompts but which I've wanted to read for a few years, called The Bees. And it's great. It's by Laylene Paul. And uh, she's written this amazing book. It's like a political thriller, but set in a beehive. <laughs> and I will say no more about it. Okay, that sounds amazing. The title already had me. It's yeah. so good. It's so good, Liz. I think you would love it. But that is probably not one that fits into the challenge. But the, the prompts are... Shall I just say what the prompts are, Yes, yeah, say what the prompts are. Why don't we just say them on the podcast? It's a shorter episode. We've got a little bit of time. If you go to the reading challenge page on the website, there's a big link at the top. You can't miss it if you go to pratchettpodcast.com. It just lays out what the prompts are. So there's a book by another author mentioned on the podcast, which might be someone we've referenced. Could be Laylene Paul. Now you you could. You could read it because I've mentioned it on the podcast. So you could read The Bees. And does it count for you? Because you mentioned it. So No, I don't think it counts for me because I already started it before. We oh, well, The Bees is a good book that I've heard of. No. That, um, <laughs> is strongly recommended. <laughs> no, that's Blue Paul. <laughs> that's fine. A book by another author who writes without chapters. That might be a difficult one. I'm reading Maria Davana Headley's new translation of Beowulf for that one because it does not have chapters. So I think that counts. A comic novel by another author. I read Gideon the Ninth for that one because it's funny. It's also like a gothic horror sci-fi novel. It's it's great. It's a mashup. Sounds like it's it? everything. Like it- uh, a book by another author that plays with fantasy tropes. A book by another author set in a fictional city. Mm, so maybe mm-hmm. you'll come up with a good city to twin with <laughs> Melbourne if we read something for that one. I haven't got one for that yet. 
uh, and a book by another author with witches as protagonists. And I just sort of did a search around and I found one called The Ruthless Lady's Guide to Wizardry. Actually, maybe someone recommended it. I can't remember now how I came up with that one, but it sounds cool and it is about witches. So that's that's what I've got for that prompt. Do you have anything on your reading list that might fit one of those, Liz? I think I mentioned Jasper Ford already on this one, but in terms of a fictional city, there is going to be a new Shades of Grey this year. I know. Which is set in a fictional place. So that's a good one. If you haven't read the original, then is that. But if you're going to read the second one, they both fit. So that's great. Mm, it's true. It's called Red Side Story. Red Side Story. That's right. Oh, I'm so excited by this. I have to reread the original one. Yeah, I've, I've got it on my list as well. Rereads count. This is just prompts for you to read things. There's no rules. Like, you can listen to an audio book. You can reread a book you've read before. You can read a comic book or a graphic novel if you want. Any book counts however you want to read it. This is just to help you maybe make some choices about what you want to read that are a bit different to the ones you normally make. Well, look, that's the reading challenge. We hope that you join us because it is going to be fun. We would love to hear from you via social media. If you join in, let us know what you're reading and if you've enjoyed them. We'll add some of those books to our website list so other people can find them as well. We also have a dedicated channel in our Discord, which is for our subscribers, um, where we discuss it there as well. So if you want to join in on the chat there, you can become a subscriber. But you don't have to. You can just send us a tweet or something if you want. We're very grateful for everyone who does subscribe to the podcast. But of course, our podcast will always remain free and ad-free. That's our promise to you from Big Pratchett. And I don't don't know why there's there's a reference to an Australian ad. Forget about that one. But anyway, we're looking forward to Nightwatch next month and then on into some other books for the rest of the year. We we recently had a meeting where we talked about our scheduling and I'm I'm gonna be honest with you, I'm excited about some of the things we're gonna do this year. It's gonna be good. We're, there's gonna be some some more short stories, there's gonna be some more other stuff. It's gonna be a fun time. Yeah, and it's very well paced, I think. That's a thing that we always think about as well. We want to make sure that it's not too much of one thing or like a big block of something else. Yeah, and particularly now that we're into the period of the Discworld books where they're all quite long, you know, we'll give you a break if you're trying to keep up with the podcast. But that's also for us. It means it's not like here's five 500-page novels in a row. Let us know uh, if you enjoyed this episode, if there's any other collection of shorter writings that you think would work well together. We're open to suggestions because we, you know, we'll try and cover everything. Uh, but some of the really short things we're never going to cover individually. So doing a little collection like this is a nice little way to fit them in. As always, thank you so much for listening and subscribing. And until next time, remember, you listen to us wholesale. You've been listening to Pratchat, the monthly Terry Pratchett book club podcast with Pratchatters Elizabeth Flux and Ben McKenzie. That's me. Pratchett is produced and edited by me with music by David Ashton of Sample and Hold Studios. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Pratchett Podcast and listen to past episodes and support the production of new ones via PratchettPodcast.com. Join the conversation for this episode using the hashtag Pratchett53. Pratt Chat is brought to you by Splendid Chaps Productions. We make entertainment for your ears, like the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps and time travel comedy series Night Terrace. To find out more, visit SplendidChaps.com.